Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. All this week, we've been counting down our 12 books of Christmas, great reads, and the authors behind them, whose ideas have expanded our horizons over the past 12 months. On today's final episode, we have journalist Jonathan Friedland telling the story of Rudolf Verba, whose escape from Auschwitz helped spread the story of the Nazis' death camps to the world. We'll be hearing from philosopher Will McCaskill about his million-year view of the future and Catherine Rundle on the weird and wonderful creatures of our natural world. Some of these are condensed versions of full episodes we've recorded, and if you want to hear them in depth, then do check back through our archive for the full longer cut. Now let's go to our first clip, Jonathan Friedland and Manveen Rana, speaking about his latest book, The Escape Artist. This is uh, an amazing book. I mean, I picked it up just sort of meaning to, to browse it before in, you know, before a proper read later and found I couldn't put it down. Um, congratulations. It's, it's, a, it's a gripping book. I really wanted to start by asking you how you first heard about this story. Well, thank you, Manveen. That's a very kind introduction. Um, and the, what I've first heard about this story more than 35 years ago. Um, I've carried this around for a long time. It stayed somewhere in the back of my mind ever since I was 19 years old when I went to see in the Curzon Mayfair in London one part of a two-part documentary film. I saw the whole film, don't worry, but I the, the, the big moment came in that first part where um, the documentary film was Shoah by Claude Landsman. Um, which is this epic documentary of the Holocaust, uh, as I say, nine and a half hours long, consists, there's no archive, it consists only of interviews with people who witnessed the eradication, the attempted eradication of the Jews of Europe. And Landsman was fascinated in the mechanics of that, how exactly it happened. And he spoke only to witnesses, people who had seen that process close up. And as a 19-year-old, you know, it seemed to me to be a succession of these old, often broken men (coughs) and women who were testifying to what they'd gone through. And then suddenly on the screen comes this figure who explodes off the screen, just full of charisma and vitality. He seems a generation younger than everyone else. Um, In some ways, he was. Uh, His name was Rudolf Verber, and he was describing the experiences he'd had as a 19-year-old, as a teenager in Auschwitz. The reason he leaps off the screen, by the way, is partly how he looks. He's very handsome. He's very striking. He's tanned. He's wearing a tan leather coat. He's got a full head of hair. It's dark. It's not gray like all the others. He looks like kind of Al Pacino in Scarface or something, you know, with Manhattan as the backdrop. He's speaking in English. A lot of the others were speaking in Polish or Czech and so on. And I just thought, who's that guy? You know, he seems out of place among all these people who were bearing witness from what seemed to be a vanished historical era. Uh, and it turned out that his name was Rudolf Verba, as I say. And it's mentioned almost as an aside by Claude Landsman that this man Verba had escaped from Auschwitz. And I knew just sitting there as a 19-year-old, the same age as the character that, who was being described, as, if you like, that even then as a 19-year-old, I knew that Jews did not escape from Auschwitz. I mean, it hardly ever happened. And what's odd is that Landsman almost doesn't really talk about that with Verber. He just puts it to one side and really wants to press Verber on everything he saw when he was inside the camp. But I was sitting there thinking, how on earth did he escape? And 
it stayed with me. It stayed somewhere lodged in the back of my mind for decades, thinking that is an amazing story. And it, I found that it did, in a strange way, sort of come back to me in the last five or six years, specifically since about 2016, the era of fake news and post-truth and so on. I find myself thinking again of Rudolf Verber, partly because, and we, I haven't yet mentioned this, but Verber, his motive for escape was in order to warn the world what was happening there and mm. to really to get out, to get the truth out from underneath this mountain of lies in Auschwitz. And so in this era of 2016 and Trump and Brexit and so on, when the word of the year from the Oxford English Dictionary was post-truth, and we were in this era of fake news, I found myself almost instinctively going back to this young teenage boy who had done the most outlandish thing possible in order to get the truth out. And that was percolating in my mind and it eventually led me to sit down and write this story. And it does feel extraordinarily timely. And there are huge parallels with, with the world now. And we'll, we'll get on to those later. I mean, in a way, I also wanted to know you know, why now in terms of, of um, you know, the characters too? Because I, I imagine you've just managed to catch a few voices and and speak to people and, and take sort of primary um, sources almost in the nick of time. Yes, that is almost exactly how it worked out. And it is quite true that there is an urgency now about telling stories of the Holocaust because so few of the people around uh, then are around now. And Verber himself died in 2006. Uh, I knew that was, um, there was no possibility there. But I had read that he uh, had, had been married twice. His second wife is alive and well and living in the United States. And she and I spoke at great length for this book many, many times. But I'd also read that he had had a first wife who uh, had had moved to England. They had both been married in post-war Czechoslovakia and that she and he both had lived in England in the 1960s. Um, and I, you know, did the maths and worked out this would be a woman in her early 90s if she was still alive. I asked around a few people. The closest I could get was that I did, you know, found out that she had taught at University College London um, at some point in her career. I worked out again that she would have retired probably 30 years ago. But I did that thing that journalists do, which is you sort of, uh, you fire off an email speculatively with no hope really that anybody will answer it. And I did it by, you know, working out the email address, you know, first name, dot, last name, at UCL, et cetera. And I sent it off and th thought, it will ping back saying undeliverable, or there'll be an administrator saying, you know, Professor Verbova, she had become a scientist, you know, left the department 25 years ago, you know. So I fired that off and then did a few things. And then I, really a matter of a very, very short while later, you know, ping on the inbox, uh, a message from Goethe Verbova saying, I live, dear Jonathan, I live in Muswell Hill. Um, I am uh, available uh, this Thursday. Why don't you come and see me and we can talk? And That you know, must have been an extraordinary moment. Well, an extraordinary moment <laughs> where your sort of heart is racing. And this was in that COVID summer of 2020. And I drove over there about, you know, 15 minutes from where I live. And we sat in her garden, socially distanced. It was on warm days. And we I had a tape recorder. You know, I used to move it over with my foot. I didn't dare go anywhere near <laughs> to her because she was 93 years old. And the extraordinary thing about her was that not only had she been married to him after the war, she knew Rudy, as she called him, from before the war. They had been teenage, I, I say teenage sweethearts in a way, she, he, he, he was a teenage crush of hers, I think. Um, but she had known Rudolf Verber, the man who before he went to Auschwitz. She knew him as a teenage boy. By then, his name then was Walter Rosenberg, Walter Rosenberg. That was the person she knew when he was 14 and she was 12. And so when we sat in that garden, she was telling me memories of the man before this, wow. you know, shaping experience. And just to say, because you, you know, said you, that, that moment of, uh, of extraordinary good fortune, on the second last, I think, of our visits, she said, you know, my grandson is here. Um, because there's something I want to give you and it's upstairs and I can't reach it myself. And Jack, her grandson, went upstairs and came back down with a red suitcase, um, which she and he together handed to me. And she said, those are Rudy's letters. And, you know, 
it was one of those moments where you thought, okay, I'm sort of meant to write this story somehow. This was meant to be. And we had, I think, one more conversation. And then I did get a phone call from Jack saying that his grandmother, Goethe, had had a fall and had died. But it came after she and I had had those, I think, six very, five or six very long recorded conversations where she was able to tell me the full story and to give me those letters. And and that really set me on my way. And it's sort of like the passing on of a torch. You sort of, you've become the, the person who holds the, the, the memorial ready to this man. Well, that's a big responsibility to put it that way. And I, I, um, and in a way, by writing a story, I, I do see that. I mean, he left behind an amazing amount of uh, of information. I mean, he for one thing, he wrote uh, his own memoir in 1963. Uh, it's very good. He co-wrote it with a Fleet Street journalist. It's it's you know very well done. He but he was also interviewed. I mentioned Claude Landsman, but he was interviewed mm. by quite a few of, in, to my mind, the people who are really in the first rank of chroniclers of the Holocaust. They sort of got how important he was. You know, we might come on to this, but he's not. He wasn't yeah. a well-known man, but Martin Gilbert, who wrote a kind of definitive history of the Holocaust, he made a big deal of Rudolf Verber. Uh, Jeremy Isaacs, who would go on to run Channel 4, uh, made the, that series, The World at War, an episode on the Holocaust. He interviewed Rudolf Verber. Though Claude Landsman, obviously. I think so. There were hundreds of pages of transcripts of interviews with Rudy that I could go through. He, you know, his papers are now in the Roosevelt Archive in New York. There was a lot of material to work on. It, it was, it seemed to me that he himself knew that some, his story was worth telling and he wanted to make sure the information was there to be picked up. It's a, a, just a remarkable tale and so well told. It's just utterly gripping. I think. The, the question that a lot of people will have is that once they do manage to get out with this information, why doesn't it explode all over the world? I mean, that's such a big question and such an important question. They do get across the border. They make contact with, you know, the remnant Jewish community, the tiny handful of Slovak Jews who have held on and not been deported. There had been a pause in the deportations from Slovakia. They make contact and then still in hiding, you know, in a basement in the Slovak town of Zilina, they pour out everything they have observed and you know, we, 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 I did toy with calling this book The Memory Man because Rudolf Erber, besides pulling off this extraordinary act of physical escape, mm. it was worth it because, or rather it was, it was made valuable because he had a gift of an extraordinary memory and he had memorized all those transports he had seen. He'd, he'd logged every single one of them to the point where when he does reach that basement in Gillina, he can almost download, he can sort of disgorge all this information that's been in his head for nearly two years. Uh, and the Slovak Jews there in Zilina write it all down. Mm. And the what is produced is called the Verba Wetzler Report is really a product of dictation. It's 32 pages, single spaced, of hard factual information. And at that moment, it's April 1944 we're talking about. At that moment, it is the most full, uh, full thorough, detailed account of Auschwitz that has existed anywhere at any time. It's the first really full detailed account of what is going on in this place. Before then, people had fragments, they had intimations, they pieced bits and pieces together. But now they have the actual, they have the goods, they have this fact. And his view was, the minute this had been done, obviously, the Auschwitz would cease to function. I mean, he believed sitting there in Auschwitz that the proof that no one in the world knew of Auschwitz's existence was Auschwitz's existence. It was unimaginable to him that a place in Europe was existing killing at its peak 12 to 15,000 people a day. Uh, that was impossible if the world knew about it because obviously the world would stop that. There was no way that would be allowed to happen. So he believed that just saying it and getting this report you know, out would do the job. It didn't quite work out that way, and that would really be a, a defining theme for the rest of his life. But the report would then embark on its on its own journey, and and that too, uh, to my mind, is a series of more extraordinary escapes. The word itself, the truth, kind of escapes across occupied Europe because this report 
you know, now we imagine when you disseminate information, you press send on a computer and it's all over the world in seconds. Mm. Then it meant physical copies had to be carried hand to hand in secret, smuggled across borders, translated in, you know, attic rooms in secret. And I have the detail there of how that all happened. I think this is the first time the journey of the report has ever been fully reconstructed as I've done in this book, how it got to all these different people. But it somehow does reach the desks of Winston Churchill, who writes in the margin of the summary version he gets, you know, what can be done, what can be said. Um, it reaches Franklin Roosevelt in Washington, D.C. It reaches the Pope in Rome. They all now have this testimony of this of this teenage boy and his friend from Ternova, Slovakia, telling them what's happening in Auschwitz. Now, the Jewish leadership who had got this word out, they'd sort of attached a note. They'd paperclipped a memo at the top of the report saying, do something, bomb the railway tracks to Auschwitz. You know, very logical. If Auschwitz is a killing factory, well, then take out the conveyor belt, you know, bomb those railway tracks. And I chart in the book how, yes, you know, Churchill sends a note to his foreign secretary saying, get anything out of the Air Force you can, invoke me if necessary. You know, different officials read it in Washington. They all are aware of the request. They've got the facts there. And yet, as we know, those railway tracks were never bombed, there was never that action either in from the RAF or from the United States Air Force. And Auschwitz carried on, you know, in its terms, Nazi language, processing 10, 12, 15,000 killing, 10, 12, 15,000 Jews a day, even after his report was out. But I do want to say, because I don't want people to come away with the idea that it somehow failed, it, it didn't because also, the report was taking you know many many routes, and one of them was it reached a journalist in Zurich, a British journalist, Walter Garrett of a, the Ex- Exchange Telegraph Press Agency, and a man who knew a story when he saw one, and he sees this report, and he realised this this is the scoop of the century in a way, and he it's an amazing scene, you know he's at night on his bicycle he writes a version and posts it through the mailbox of all the different news agencies in neutral Switzerland. And that gets the word out. It then does make it into the newspapers. And then in late June, well, then finally, in a way, Roosevelt and the Pope, they feel, I think, to some extent, shamed into acting because now their publics know about this. And they write to the de facto leader of Hungary, where these the last Jewish community that hadn't yet been fully eradicated and slaughtered uh, or caught in the Nazi inferno, better way of putting it, mm. um, they uh, they write to the de facto leader of Hungary and say, you've got to halt these deportations. Now, by then, 437,000 Jews of the Hungarian provinces had been deported and most of them murdered in Auschwitz. But the Jews of the capital city, Budapest, had not yet been killed. They get that you know, plea from the Pope almost a threat from Roosevelt, that you'll be prosecuted for war crimes if you allow this to continue. And they halt, halt this Rahorti, the leader of Hungary, halts the deportation and of the Jews of Budapest. And that is why I say Verba, along with Wetzler, are should be credited with saving 200,000 Jewish lives. It is one of the great acts of rescue and heroism of the Second World War. And it is why I consider... Rudolf Verbert's name should be up there with and Frank, Oscar Schindler, Primo Levi as the names that define our understanding of the Holocaust. What do you get the person who has everything? How about time with some of the world's most brilliant minds? Intelligence Squared Plus gift subscriptions at $14.99 per month give access to our entire video library as well as live streamed events every week. You can pick the length of the subscription at the checkout and best of all, there's no delivery time. Visit intelligencesquaredplus.com today or click the link in our episode description to get yourself a gift subscription for a loved one today. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. 
I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's not controversial to say that the here and now that we live in is far from problem-free. But should we be focusing on fixing the world in front of us? Or does humanity need to take a longer look beyond the present to save our future? The latter is the argument of philosopher Will McCaskill, whose work as one of the most influential thinkers on effective altruism has been put in the media spotlight recently by testing economic times during the latter half of 2022. In September, he came to Intelligence Squared to discuss what long-termism and effective altruism really mean and his book What We Owe the Future, A Million Year View. He's joined in conversation with global development expert Max Roser. Your new book is about long-termism. What, in your own words, is long-termism? Yeah, so long-termism is the view that uh, we should be doing much more to protect the interests of future generations than we're currently doing today. That's the key idea. How long-term are you thinking in, in, <laughs> uh, when you're thinking about long-termism? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, in principle, indefinitely long the core ideas behind long-termism are that future people matter, that there could be a lot of them, and that we can make a difference to how well their lives go. And in principle, at least, I think it, if you're affecting the life of someone, it doesn't matter whether they will live you know, in 100 years' time or 1,000 years' time or 100 million years' time. I think their interests count kind of just the same. And I actually think, and it's very surprising, um, took me a while to come around to this view, that there are things that we are doing, kind of, and, or that will happen in our lifetimes, that could make a difference to not just, you know, the next few generations, but actually potentially all generations to come. And I think in expectation, humanity's life expectancy could be very long, in which case we're talking about potentially hundreds of millions or even billions of years. I mean, maybe one, one way to understand this idea better is to uh, see the differences with, with more widely known ethical ideas. One idea that is now very widely accepted and uh, that many people have a relationship to is the idea of sustainability, where the classic definition is to meet the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. How is long-termism different from sustainability as an ethical idea? Yeah, so if that's the definition of sustainability we use, there's obviously an enormous amount in common, namely that both are paying much more attention to future generations. However, uh, I would want to say that, look, we should treat, there's nothing special about future generations, morally speaking. And this principle you suggested of, well, helping, you know, 
not compromising on the needs of the present while ensuring that future generations are kind of at least as well off. Well, it suggests that's like a different way of thinking morally than the need than when comparing the interests of people in Germany versus the UK versus Uganda. And I would want to say that, well, just whatever kind of moral reasoning we use when thinking about the impact you could have on the life of someone in the United Kingdom versus a poor country versus the United States, we should apply that same sort of reasoning to people in the future as well, because you know they will have, be people that have interests and hopes and joys and fears like the rest of us. Is there maybe like a, a practical example for where that difference actually matters? Like something that you would do as a long-termist that you wouldn't do as someone who's concerned about sustainability? I mean, one obvious thought is the issue of extinction risk, where there are some risks that will not only be enormously harmful for the present generation, such as kind of worst case pandemics, but would also kind of uh, derail the whole of humanity's future by just bringing human civilization to an end. And if we're thinking in terms of like, well, ensure that the needs of future generations are met, Well, if there are no future generations at all, uh, because we've gone extinct, then it's like, it's hard to see how that principle would apply. Whereas um, one of the things I think that we really should care about is just, you know, the enormous potential loss in terms of kind of well-being and further development and accomplishment that would occur if, you know, the human race were to completely end. And so that, that would be a kind of concrete difference. Right. I mean, that's that's maybe a second um, ethical idea that I wanted to to understand the the difference with long termism a bit uh, better. Um, I think many people are concerned about large scale catastrophes that are possibly so large that they could possibly kill everyone um, in the world, from nuclear war or um, a really worst case pandemic. And even I, like as a, a relatively optimistic person. I, I'm, I'm very worried about these risks and, and take them seriously as, as possibilities that I want to avoid in, in my own lifetime. And even just as a self-interested person who's not taking into account what, what might happen to others uh, necessarily when I'm thinking about this, I'm concerned about existential risks. And if I'm already there, just being worried about my own future and the future maybe of my children and, and those close to me, why would I, um, what, what difference would it make uh, to take a long-termist ethical perspective? Like what extra, extra worries do I have as a long-termist that I don't have anyways as someone who's concerned about um, existential risks? Uh, sure. So, um, I mean, I think there's a few things. So one is just, even if there was no differences in kind of how you act, if you're already concerned. I do kind of think it's good for people to have kind of what I would regard as kind of a correct model understanding of the world. Because I don't know, perhaps we do really well at reducing these existential risks, but perhaps there's more that we can be doing to benefit future generations. A second is that I think that positively impacting the long-term future isn't just around about, you know, reducing these kind of worst case catastrophes. As I talk about in The book, at some length, I also think it's about trying to improve the values that might guide future generations too, where it seems to me at least plausible that the values that are predominant over you know, the coming few centuries actually could have extraordinarily long-lasting influence, and that it's a relatively contingent matter whether those values are good or whether they're bad. So I think it was conting you know, historically contingent that after the Second World War, it was kind of liberal democratic values that were predominant rather than Stalinist or Nazi values. And I actually think the very long-term future would have looked worse if it had been kind of fascist values that had um, come out predominant. Right. Although, of course, those people at that time, they were not necessarily worrying about us in 2022. They were just worried about what, what might happen next year, tomorrow, uh, in Germany, in Russia, in, in the US. Yeah, so I think it changes how you prioritize too. Yeah, where um, I think all of these things I'm pointing to, they are just really bad in the present as well. So, I mean, I kind of, you know, in a slogan, it's like think long-term or act now or like <laughs> near-term risks with long-term consequences. So they all do have our pressing concerns now. And I think if 
the human race as a whole or society as a whole had its act together, we would be spending vastly more to prevent the next pandemic, to carefully guide development of AI, to be working on better values. But there's a question of like, well, what's very most important? You know, if you're someone who's altruistically minded and really motivated, what should we be doing to do as much good as possible? The claim that society as a whole should be trying to do more. Well, there's still this question of like, okay, as an individual, if you want to have the biggest impact, should you be focusing on things that have really large kind of short run impacts, but where it's not really clear how that translates into longer term impacts? So with effective altruism, one of the things we've done is kind of corporate cage free campaigns to give animals and factory farms just better living conditions. And that's averted a huge amount of suffering, I think, but it's not really clear like what the long lasting impacts of that. And so that's a way in which I would think, okay, no, there are some things that are good, not just in the present, but over the long term too, and they become comparatively more important. Um, if we've got to make these hard trade-offs, then we start to focus on them more. Jack, to stay on this uh, question of, of values and the political regimes that we, we try to uh, support and uh, strive for, like if you hadn't published this book today, but you had lived 100 years earlier and it was uh, the 1st of September 1922, um, and people would have been convinced about the importance of long-termism What would they have done differently back then that could have made us now better off? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the values is the key thing. So, I mean, in the 1920s, there are, well, actually, there's a few kind of trends. So one thing is just that the basic understanding of the greenhouse effect and warming from carbon dioxide, 1896 was the first quantitative estimate. And it was surprisingly good, actually. At the time, people didn't appreciate just how much carbon we were going to emit into the atmosphere. But I actually think that with like further work, that should have been predictable because it's just based on an exponentially growing economy. And so one thing that we could have started doing is like, imagine if we got started with the kind of campaign to be concerned about climate change, you know, 60 years earlier or 50 years earlier than we'd done. You could have engaged in like very gentle long-term planning that like people wouldn't have opposed. Perhaps it's a carbon tax that's like one penny per ton to begin with. And then it just gradually scales up over time. You could have normalized these ideas and it could have been like uh, pretty painless. I think we could have just like essentially avoided the problem of climate change. We would have been acting on more speculative evidence, but I think the gains from acting early would have outweighed the losses from having to act on more speculative evidence. And so I actually kind of see a lot of the issues I'm pointing to, such as around engineered pathogens and artificial intelligence, as kind of like that, you know, climate change in the 1920s or something. So that's one thing. Then secondly is uh, priorities that I still think are important, which are uh, ensuring good values, thinking about future technological developments, thinking about the like how bad the risk of war could be. Now, It's true that as things went, like obviously there was already enormous attention on, you know, trying to stop the rise of fascist Germany. And so in that case, it's not so clear, you know, maybe there would have been extra effort on that or something, uh, but there already was a lot. But still, I think that would have been helpful. Still, I also think that like more people thinking about that at the time, potentially even having a longer run thought on um, the potential for atomic weapons to just radically change society. Again, just more people kind of working on these issues and taking them seriously, it seems would have resulted in a better outcome, I think. Yeah, like the, the example of um, climate change is an interesting one. Now, like uh, bringing us back to today, what do you think we can actually do now to positively impact the long-term future? Uh, yeah, I think there's many things to do. Um, the things that are most factable and I'm most excited about, yet most neglected, are within the area of pandemic preparedness, where, you know, This was actually one of the things that really made me endorse the kind of long-termist approach, like really on a gut level, is just seeing that people who were bought into these ideas were worrying about, you know, pe global pandemics for many, many years, encouraging people to go into these areas and funding them since about 2016. There was a kind of community prediction that there would be a pandemic with at least 10 million dead. And this was in 2016 in the following decade, put like one in three probability on this. And then it's just, well, it happened and was enormously costly and, you know, this enormous tragedy. And it just made me think like, look, we just could have been preparing way more for, you know, 
allegedly unprecedented events, but that are actually like foreseeable. And I think we can do this again. And now here's the second part of it. After COVID, what response has there been? Well, after 9-11, there was, there was um, you know, a new Department of Homeland Security in the US, enormous kind of global response. And after COVID-19, it's been essentially crickets. But there are things that we can really do. So early detection, so you just all around the world have sites that are monitoring wastewater, screening that wastewater for all sorts of, all DNA in the sample, apart from human DNA. Is there any new pathogen that's like exponentially increasing? Then we can respond to pandemic like as soon as it arises. And then a second technology I'm particularly excited about is um, low wavelength light that you can install in light bulbs and it kind of sterilizes a room essentially. So in just the same way that, you know, when I drink tap water, that has been chlorinated to stop it from giving me diseases. But yet the air I breathe is entirely like unpurified. Whereas with research and development, we could both ensure efficacy, safety, and also get the cost down. We could try to have this sort of lighting installed in light bulbs all around the world as part of building codes. We could prevent the next pandemic while also getting rid of most of the spiritually diseases. And that's just something that's like, look, it's on the table for us. <laughs> we actually have a really pretty good understanding of like how viruses work and what we could be doing to protect against them. It's so much on the table. And and I think that's one of the <laughs> things that, that, that made me quite a bit more pessimistic really in uh, the last years. Like, I think I would have expected that at some point we might, uh, we might have a pandemic. I think like the, the public health experts, the epidemiologists, they were very clear that the, the, the risk is, is considerable. So that wasn't that surprising. But the fact that we lived through an entire pandemic, 23 million people, I think, um, dead, that's kind of the current um, excess mortality estimate. Like, obviously, everyone spent all of these months indoors, all the lockdowns that, that, uh, that we suffered through. And that we are now uh, slowly getting to the other side of that. And we are doing almost nothing to prevent the next pandemic. That I would have it's really wild. not predicted uh, two I, years ago. Yeah, yeah me neither. I, was, I would have expected a much larger response from the governments of the world. And so in the United States, there was a bill called the Apollo Program. Oh, part of Build Back Better was funding the Apollo Program. $70 billion would have been in, made enormous difference to the chance of the next pandemic. And yeah, just got completely stuck down because there was no one really championing it um, in Congress. Um, I know less about the UK, but it's also that I'm not, you know, there's nothing I'm kind of aware of yet in terms of like really major programs. Because also globally, I mean, just economics, just again, pure self-interest, like you mentioned to begin with, even just from the perspective of, you know, people in Europe and people in the United States, even if they only, they don't care about even their children, they just care about themselves. Um, they don't care about people you know, the global poor who will be most affected by a pandemic. Even just on those grounds, it makes enormous sense to be investing what is globally tiny amounts of money. And it's, yeah, it's still not happening. And so I think we just, yeah, really need to campaign for that. And now to our final pick of 2022. We're going to a fantastic and fantastical conversation about the charming strangeness and fragile beauty of the animals who make up our natural world. We were joined in late December by author Catherine Rundle, who spoke about the wonderful creatures presented in her new book, The Golden Mole and Other Living Treasure. The full conversation will be out on the podcast from the 4th of January, 2023. We hope you enjoy our final pick of 2022 and we look forward to being with you again in the new year. Here's Catherine Rundle in conversation with academic and broadcaster Eleanor Rosmond Barraclough. Tell us more about how you came to write it and what you wanted to do in it. The Golden Mole is a collection of 22 animals. The only criteria for inclusion was that the animal or a subspecies of the animal be endangered. But we live in a world of such peril that that is unfortunately not a way to whittle down at all. There is almost no creature, certainly no vertebrate, for which that is not true. And so I wanted it to be a kind of almost like a bestiary, a collection of unfamiliar creatures that would lay out some of the wildest and strangest wonders of the living world, and then also familiar creatures where it would offer something more like a sense that we can make the familiar strange. Because one of the things I write about quite a lot in the book is the necessity for wonder 
Uh, it quotes G.K. Chesterton, the world will never starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. But I don't mean passive wonder. I mean political, active, informed, galvanic wonder. And I think the only way to continually exist in a salute to the wonder that the world deserves is to continue to learn about it because you can't be wondered by something that you already know. And so therefore, curiosity seems to me a political imperative. I, I couldn't agree more. Honestly, I learned so much reading your book, like every page, it just comes out at you, but just so beautifully. I mean, it's exquisitely written. Of course it is. It's, it's you. But it's also exquisitely illustrated by Talia Baldwin. And tell me, why was it so important to make this book so visually arresting? It's like, yeah, it's like a medieval bestiary. It's like this jeweled work of art. And how did you go about collaborating with Talia? So I had loved her work. And when I had started thinking about the book, the book is called The Golden Mole and Other Living Treasure. And if it has a politics, the politics is this, we are bad as humans as identifying what is and is not treasure. But that is not set in stone. That can change. That was something that was being uh, written about a 100 years ago by John Maynard Keynes, the sense that we have not been good at working out what is that which we owe our finest and most focused attention and protection to. So I wanted all of the creatures to be black and white and gold, so that this idea that the truest treasure is that which lives, would be rendered visually. And we thought that Talia has this beautiful mix of, of realism, whereby the creatures she draws do look like she draws them, but she also has a sense of character and flair. We wanted them to feel a little bit strange because the project is in some way an estrangeling. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. And um, I mean, they are they are, yeah, they are magnificent works of art to surround these beautiful words. Um, let's meet some of the animals then in your modern day bestiary. Let's start with the wombat. I don't think I've ever fallen in love so fast with any living creature as I did when reading about this one. So please, could you give us a taster, read a bit from your book? I would love to. The wombat. Dante Gabriel Rossetti wrote in 1869, is a joy, a triumph, a delight, a madness. The painter's house at 16 Cheney Walk in Chelsea had a large garden, which he began to stock with wild animals. He acquired, among other beasts, wallabies, kangaroos, a raccoon and a zebu. He looked into the possibility of keeping an African elephant, but concluded that at £400 it was unreasonably priced. He bought a toucan, which it was rumoured, although I think this is apocryphal, that he trained to ride a llama. But above all, he loved wombats. He had two, one named Top after William Morris, whose nickname Topsy came from his head of tight curls. In September, Rosie wrote a letter that the wombat had successfully interrupted a seemingly uninterruptible monologue by John Ruskin by burrowing between the critic's waistcoat and chest. Rossetti drew the wombats over and over, he sketched his mistress, who was William Morris's wife, Jane, walking one on a leash. And I would urge people to go and Google this. In the image, both Jane and the wombat have small halos and they both look irate, which is just magnificent. Can you tell us I mean, why, why the halos? I did look up. It's the most incredible picture I've ever seen. <laughs> What's going on there? I think he had a sense that they have some kind of otherworldly pull because of course wombats do have a kind of grace to them that we have often loved them for the sweetness of their face. Theodore Adorno in the aftermath of the Second World War, the man who raised the question of can there be poetry after Auschwitz, he wrote to the zoo saying could we not have two wombats because they had brought him such joy in his youth and he thought they would bring joy again. There is something just faintly alchemic about them. Even in your um, the, the image, um, the Talia's picture it almost looks like the wombat has a halo on top of its head there it's it's just I mean was it a challenge not to turn an animal so well as you say sweet-faced and rotund into a cute character from a Disney cartoon how do you balance adorability with dignity so this is the thing I think about a lot is human anthropomorphizing a good thing because I think I want to write in a way that will be memorable because it is only by being memorable that we can root ideas under people's skin. And that's what people have been doing when they've been trying to write for 2,000 years. But 
there is a danger to writing about creatures in idiosyncratic and fictional ways, in, in the sense that, for instance, the wolf, the fact that we have always chosen it as a way to sort of pour our furies and anxieties into it, from Red Riding Hood to Ovid to Ivan Zarevich and the Grey Wolf, it is, most scholars think, directly connected to that fairy tale vision of the wolf that led to the extinction of several breeds of wolf in Europe and worldwide. And so I think there is always an urgent need to say, these things are beautiful, and I will sometimes describe them in human terms because that is the way the human mind works, but they are not ours. They are not us. They are themselves and emphatically so. And the book works around this idea that the greatest lie we ever told was that the world is ours and at our disposal to do as we will with it. And I want always to, in these pieces, try to remind myself as much as anything, the world is infinitely wilder and stranger than we can know it. Our knowledge is beautiful and remarkable, but the world itself is so much more so that our knowledge barely touches the edges of the truth. And so I want always to be careful to salute that, the unknown of the animal world. And it's funny because, well, as you say, the wolf has plenty of negative fairy tale connotations that might explain it. The wombat is ridiculously cute by any standards, and yet it's not an altogether happy story at all when it comes to wombat-human interactions, which we quickly realise is a major theme in your work. So, I mean, even Napoleon's wife, Josephine, you say, she had a pet wombat, but it was the, what was the the sole survivor of an ill-fated voyage. Is that right? Exactly that. So she had a a great passion for a wombat. And um, the famed explorer, uh, Nicholas Baudin, he went in 1803 uh, to what was then New Holland, now Australia, And they lost 10 kangaroos and emus and Baudin himself began spitting blood. They nearly lost two sailors and huge amounts of the creatures that they had seized with the kind of clumsy and unfocused hunger that we have so often evinced. Our love is very great for these wild creatures, but often our love is deadly. And the book is in some ways a litany of the ways in which our desire to be close to these creatures. You know, uh, Josephine longed to hold a wombat in her arms and she was able to do so, but at great cost. Well, let's turn now to um, a creature you wouldn't necessarily want to be holding in your arms, to put it mildly. It's rather less cute and cuddly, isn't it? The Greenland shark. It's not the most prepossessing of animals. Tell me about the eye worms (laughs) and the urea. (laughs) So the Greenland shark, one of the least beautiful creatures, perhaps, uh, in the ocean. Um, It smells very strongly of urine, such that it was said to be descended from Sedna, from her her urine pot, the goddess of the sea. Um, And it has, it's partially blind. It swims very, very low down and dark, eight Eiffel Towers deep. And it has little worms that sort of float off its eyes like uh, parasitic confetti. And so it doesn't have obvious loveliness, but I have been totally undone by this creature. The more you find out about it, the more you you come to love it. Yeah, I mean, it is extraordinary to the point of almost being a work of science fiction, isn't it? I mean, can you read something that will illustrate that? It's just, I didn't know any of this about the Greenland shark. So I was writing this article during the beginning of the pandemic. In 1606, a devastating pestilence swept through London. The dying were boarded up in their homes, and a decree went out that the theatres and the bear-baiting and the brothels be closed. They had plague merchants who had three-foot wands to swack at people who weren't social distancing. And it was then that Shakespeare wrote one of his very, very few references to the plague, and he wrote, "'Good men's lives expire before the flowers in their caps, dying before they sicken.'" And as he wrote those words, a Greenland shark that is still alive today swam through the northern seas. And it was at the time about a 100 years old. But a Greenland shark can live up to 500 years. So its parents would have been old enough to have lived alongside Boccaccio and its great, great grandparents alongside Julius Caesar. 
And so for thousands of years, the Greenland sharks have swum in silence while above them the world has burned and rebuilt and burned again. And I find that idea of something that moves slowly and living through the darkness of the water, I find that remarkable. It's beautiful. Thank you. Once again, the Greenland shark, as we say, it's a theme. They've very much fallen prey to human ingenuity and greed. You you have an astonishing description of paint on the side of Norwegian fishing huts that is incredibly vibrant 50 years after it's been painted because it has shark oil in it. But for you, they're also a symbol of hope, aren't they? Yes, hope with caveats. But the idea says at the end, I'm glad not to be a Greenland shark. I don't have enough thoughts to fill 500 years. But I find the very idea of them hopeful because they will see us pass through whichever spinning chaos we might currently be living through and the crash that will come after and they will live through the currently unimagined things that will come after that. The transformations and revelations and possible liberations. That's their beauty and it's breathtaking that they go on. They're the closest thing to eternal that this world has to offer. And I think the huge caveat, of course, is They go on for as long as human degradation does not encroach on their oceans. They go on if we will take the actions which are amply available and ready for us to take to sustain the space that the Greenland shark needs to swim in its half a thousand years per life. Let's return to the cuddly side of the animal kingdom. Tell me about the utter utter delight that is a lima ball. (laughs) So the lima ball is one of the very finest things in existence. The lima ball, I'm going to read just a little bit here. It's probably best not to take advice direct and unfiltered from the animal kingdom, but lemurs, I think, are the exception. They live in matriarchal troops with an alpha female at their head. And when ring-tailed lemurs are cold or frightened, or when they want to bond, they group together in a furry mass known as a lima ball, forming a black and white sphere that ranges in size from a football to a bicycle wheel or bigger. And they intertwine their paws and hands and they press against one another's walnut-sized, swiftly beating hearts. And to see it feels an injunction of sorts, to find a lima ball of one's own. Honestly, I don't know about you. If I'm reincarnated, I'm coming back as a lemur. That is... <laughs> now, I don't... Well, I don't think you've met a Greenland shark, but you have met a lemur, haven't you? How did that go? I have. I spent a little bit of my childhood in Madagascar and we went to visit the lemurs and she did try to bite me, uh, but she was right to do so because we have done very little to uh, endear ourselves to the lemur. She was remarkable in her beauty. They do have a kind of um, a kind of yellow, wide-eyed vibrancy. And she had a little baby riding on her back. Monkeys, of course, often ride on the front, but lemurs tend to ride on the back like a sort of miniature Lester Piggott. And she was, she was a shining thing. <laughs> 